All right, we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 13. We're continuing on in our series through the book of Judges, a series that we've entitled Broken Leaders and God's Unbroken Promise. Judges 13, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 24, but I want to read into your hearing this morning just just the first five verses. So I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word. Judges chapter 13, and we're just going to read here at the start verses 1 through 5. I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. And the author notes this. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man from Zerah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. Verse 5, For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And this morning, church, I want us to consider this idea. Won't he do it? Won't he do it? Let's go before him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who moves and moves in power. We thank you that we don't have to understand God, we don't even have to agree because you are God all by yourself. I pray that you will give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Won't he do it? It was, excuse me, it was during the late 2000s Uh, that I had an opportunity to go and to spend some time in northern Africa. We were going into a closed country. So in other words, the gospel was not welcome there. And we went under the pretense of coaching basketball. And we, we did coach. But the main reason that we were there were to support the local missionaries and Christians in their work and, and to provide some theological training for church leaders in newly formed underground churches. Now that's going to be ironic in just a minute that we were there to teach theological lessons when it was on this trip that the Lord taught me one that I needed to learn. And so as we arrived, we had some initial instruction to help us get the lay of the land. It's some of you who have done missionary uh, trips and spent a good bit of time overseas, you know, it's, it's a different ball game when you're going into a country that is closed to the gospel, that is hostile towards the gospel. And so you've got to get the lay of the land. It's a dangerous thing to just walk out and start sharing the gospel on the street. It won't go well for you. And so we were getting prepped, we were getting instructions, and I remember that one of the things that we were prepped for uh, was to expect and how to hand them these random encounters where someone would come and need for us to explain a dream to them. They said that they were seeing people who were coming into the city from the countryside and they would all say the same thing. This is a true story. They would come and say, I saw a man who looked like me 
And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And somehow in these dreams, these individuals were instructed how to find the missionaries or other believers in the country and that these people could explain what that dream meant. Now remember, this is a closed country. The gospel is not allowed. There's a risk involved for these individuals to walk in and to ask questions about this. Transparency here. I was convinced it didn't happen. I was convinced. Now, you have to understand. All right, let me try to justify myself a little bit. In some of the churches I grew up in, miracles <clears throat> were talked about. They were explained, but often they were talked about and explained as past events that revealed how God used to act. And I'm not sure if someone told it to me or if I simply just kind of landed on it, came to the conclusion on my own. But but what they were instructing us about was something that I just had determined didn't happen anymore. God didn't do that. And I remember thinking, come on now, these are the stories you tell back in the States when you're trying to get money, when you're trying to fundraise. These are the stories that you tell. So the very next morning, we were sitting outside of a coffee shop, having just gotten our coffee, our mint tea, that might give you a hint as to where I was. I was sitting with a local believer who was a leader in one of the churches and a young man, also a believer, who was going to be my translator during our time there. Um, I don't speak Arabic, so I needed a translator. And I said to them while we were sitting there having coffee, you know, because in all of my 20 years of life at this point, I had God figured out. And I said, I mean... I remember this conversation. I said, that dream stuff that they were talking about last night. Like, God doesn't really do that anymore. And I kind of phrased it like a question, but I was really making a statement. Like, God doesn't do that. And I remember the church leader I was with simply looked at me and smiled and said, oh, he doesn't, does he? <laughs> that was the end of the conversation. True story. We continued talking. We moved on to different subjects. I think we started talking about basketball and the NBA and church. I'll never forget what happened next. As we were finishing up, a man approached our table. He looked dirty, disheveled in church. The smell that was coming off of this man. Like If I'm honest, this is one of the guys that when we see on the streets, we tend to go the other way. And he began to speak to us in Arabic. And the gentleman I was with, the leader in the church, began speaking back. So I'm curious. I leaned over and I whispered to the translator, hey, can you tell me what's going on? And so the translator began to whisper the conversation to me. And the only thing I needed to hear was the very first sentence. He whispered in my ear, the man said, I had a dream. Can you help me understand? Church, even now, it's hard to put into words the emotion and the thoughts that flooded my body. Because more than anything, it's hard to put into words the awe I felt toward God in that moment. The entire conversation between this man and the leader in the church lasted about five minutes, and it ended with the church leader quietly praying over this man and sending him on his way. And as it ended, I remembered how I was 
fighting back tears, right? Trying not to just burst into sobs. This is American in the middle of the street sitting at a coffee shop. And the church leader looked over at me and with a smile on my face, he said, God won't do what now? (laughs) I learned a very important theological lesson in that moment, one that has stayed with me to this day. Here it is. Won't he do it? No, no, church, won't he do it? And if, if, if that wasn't enough, let me, let me further expand what I learned. I learned that God has never needed me to understand what he is doing in order for him to get it done. God has never needed me to agree with him before he will do it. And God will always accomplish that which he sets out to accomplish. And in our text this morning, it is a reminder to us that God is God all by himself. And God will accomplish his plan. And so this morning, we begin to consider our sixth and final major judge in the book of Judges. We're coming towards the end of this series. We got a few messages left and we're going to look at Samson. We're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at him, but before he even comes on the scene, an entire chapter is devoted to his birth. And for good reason. You see, the story begins There in verse 1, and we read this. It says, And the people of the Lord again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Once again, the people of God have rebelled against God. You know, when we were last in the book of Judges a couple weeks ago, we ended with the story of Jephthah. And after Jephthah's death, there were three more cycles of sin. The cycle of sin that we have seen played out in the book of Judges since the very beginning. The people rebel against God. They are placed in captivity. The captivity begins to be too much. They cry out to God. God is just good like that. So he delivers, raises up a judge. The the people stay faithful as long as the judge is alive. But once the judge dies, the cycle starts all over again. And so since Jephthah's death, In the eight verses prior to chapter 13, we encounter the final three minor judges. We see Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. Each judge needed because Israel continues to sin against God. And here we are again. The people doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so they were handed over to the Philistines who will play a significant role in the life of Israel through King David's lifetime. Notice that they were under the Philistine rule for the longest period of time we've seen so far, 40 years. It's almost as if as the sin increases, so do the consequences. But in this introductory section, we've seen... Time and time again, there's something significant about this introduction. In fact, what is significant is what is missing. Because for the first time, the people do not cry out to God for deliverance. Did you notice it's not there? They do not cry out to God for deliverance. And make no mistake, the author isn't simply forgetting to put the details in. The author is revealing just how far they have fallen and yet how gracious God is. Miles Van Pelt in his commentary is helpful when he explains the people have become so comfortable in their sin and blind to their subjugation. It is therefore the Lord's great mercy 
that causes him to set out to deliver his people even before they come to know of their need. Two things I want to say about this. First, church, it is a scary thing when we get comfortable with our sin. It is even scarier still when we don't realize we're trapped. Now you would think, right, go with me here. You, let's place ourselves in the midst of Israel for a moment. You would think that as much deliverance as Israel has seen so far, right, you, you don't even have to look past the book of Judges. Like we can forget about, you know, delivery from Egypt. We can forget about, you know, God causing the walls of Jericho to fall. Just in the book of Judges alone, there has been enough deliverance that you would think the people of God might say, is this God really is he really worth following? I think so. He, he has proven himself time and time again. But instead, they fall even deeper into sin. Now, it's kind of easy to stay, take a step back and say, Israel was the worst. But can I tell you that the same temptation exists for us as well? Because as great as Israel's deliverance was... Ours is greater. And like Israel, we are tempted to grow complacent when it comes to sin. Please hear me, church. Past deliverance from sin does not exempt you from present vigilance. Past deliverance from sin does not exempt you from present vigilance vigilance just because you feel like you have overcome or God has delivered you in a particular area that is actually the prime place for temptation to come in I mean we have to understand that Satan will not just attack you where you are weak he will attack you where you think you are strong how do I know this that's exactly what he did with Jesus do you remember Jesus temptation in Matthew chapter 4 it says that Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days. He'd been fasting for 40 days. It was a supernatural fast, right? Just side note, please don't try to fast from food and water for 30 days or for 40 days. Don't do it for 30 days. So Jesus is on a supernatural fast. It's a unique kind of fast. And the Bible tells us he was hungry. He was hungry. Jesus, fully God, but fully man. He was weak. And Satan goes right after that point of weakness and he says, command these stones to turn into bread. So Satan goes after where Jesus is weakest and he doesn't, go, he doesn't give in. But did you, do you notice, do you remember what Satan does second? He says in Matthew 4, 6, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So after Satan couldn't get him where he was weak, he went after him where he was strong with his very word. Satan won't just go after you where you're weak. He'll go after you where you think you've got it all together. There is a real temptation for us to grow complacent with sin. The temptation comes and we think, ah, it's not that big of a deal. I'll just, I'll give in a little bit. No one will know. It's just a little white lie. No one's going to find out. It's all good. It's just a quick glance at that guy, that girl walking down the street. No harm done. But James warns us of this in James 1, 14 
and 15 where he gives this progression of sin and he says, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. So a temptation can lead to a desire. And then a desire unchecked can lead to sin. And sin unchecked leads to death. And the goal for us as Christians is to be so in tune with our walks, watching, guarding, that when the temptation comes, we cut it off right there. We want to kill sin before it starts. And God is so good that he provides a way out every time. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. Here it is, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will always provide a way out so that you will be able to bear it. I love this. I think I've shared it before. When he says that he will provide a way in the Greek, it literally means he will create a way where there is no way. God's that good at giving you outs. He can make a way where there is no way. Won't he do it, church? That's exactly what he does in our story this morning. God is going to make a way where there is no way. But before we get to that second, I don't want you to just see how scary it is when we get comfortable with sin. More than that, I want you to see how merciful our God is. With Othniel, Israel cried out to God and God delivered. With Ehud, Israel cried out to God and God delivered. With Deborah, Israel cried out to God and God delivered. With Gideon, Israel cried out to God and God delivered. With Jephthah, Israel cried out to God and God delivered. And as the story of Samson begins, Israel does not cry out to God and yet God will deliver. Don't don't miss this. Israel isn't even thinking about God, but God's thinking about them. Israel is content in their sin, but God is going to deliver them anyway. Israel is fine with being enslaved to the Philistines, and even still, God is going to work for their freedom. They don't even realize how much they need God, and that doesn't change the fact that God is pursuing them. And I'm not sure if I'm talking about Israel anymore or if I'm talking about your story. Because there should be at least three or four of you this morning willing to praise God because when you did not want him, he pursued you. When you were slaves to sin and you didn't even know it, he was willing to break your chains and set you free. When you were faithless, he was faithful because that's just who he is. God works whether we want him to or not. And here in our text, God was working for the deliverance of Israel even when Israel was not aware of their need for it. But let me show you, let me show you how he did it. Look at verse 2. It says, there was a certain man of Zerah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, this is beautiful. Does it sound familiar to you at all? Just sound a little familiar? It's a story we've heard over and over in Scripture. You see, birth, I'm going to give you some insight, right? Birth narratives in Scripture are always used to identify major figures, specifically figures who are significant to the redemptive historical narrative. So let me make it plain for you what I just said. In other words, when the Bible takes this much time to tell you someone's birth story, you know God is about to do something amazing. 
God's going to show off. I mean, think about the pattern we just saw in verses 2 and 3. A barren mother. The announcement by the angel of the Lord of a child. The child's commission. The parents struggle to believe the news. Then there's the naming of the child and the child finds favor with the Lord. Think about how we've seen that play out in the Bible. We see it with Isaac. We see it with Jacob and Esau. We see it with the 12 patriarchs of Israel. We see it here with Samson. We see it with Samuel. We see it with John the Baptist. And finally, we see it with Jesus. The common thread through every one of these stories is weakness, questioning, and the unsurety of the parents. And specifically in the Old Testament, the concept of a barren woman is an indication that God's about to show off. And why is it always the barren woman? Have you thought about that? Why does God always pick that? Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because God often uses the weak and the destitute and the broken to accomplish his greatest work. Because once again, I, you might be tired of hearing, I mean, it's a story of judges. It's the same cycle. I got the same thing to say pretty much week to week. But I, I'm just going to tell you again, God has never needed you to be strong to accomplish what he wants through you. Listen to me. Some of you right now are believing that if you could just get your life together, then God could use you. If you could just get your family together, then God could use you. If you could just get those Twitter followers up, you could get that platform that you've always wanted, then God can use you. But this text is positioned to teach us that God does not have to take you out of your weakness and brokenness to use you. In fact, he will meet you in the midst of it just to show off. He can use the very weakness and the brokenness that you despise to bring about something beautiful. And don't miss this. God meets Manoah's wife in her brokenness, and he does not take her out of it. Listen, I wasn't going to go here, but let me, let me pause this morning. I, I don't presume to, I've been gone for a week, all right? I'll use that as an excuse. I don't presume to know what you are going through right now. Some of you I do. Some of you we've taught. Some of you are probably on the mountaintop. Praise God, I rejoice with you. But some of you might be in the valley low right now. And can I just tell you that God is near to the brokenhearted. He does not have to pull you out of his brokenness for you to know that he is there. He will sit with you in it because he's that good. And then he will take that brokenness. He will take that weakness and he will show off. So, so not only are you amazed, but your life will be a testimony to how good God is. I know brokenness is hard. I know weakness is, is wearisome. But endure, brother and sister, because it is in the midst of that where God will so often do his greatest work. Listen, some of us this morning just need to stop trying to act like we aren't weak and we aren't broken and let God work with what we got. It ain't much but he can use it. And see, that's where Manoah's wife is. She is broken. She is weak in her barrenness. And then God shows up. And oh, church, when God shows up. Watch this, because this is amazing. In verse 3, the angel says to her, Behold, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, Listen, I'm, I'm so glad that the Bible is written in English. It makes it a lot easier for us. 
But sometimes we miss some stuff because it's in English. Because the Hebrew here is telling a story that we can't see in our English translation. You see, in, in verse 3, when the author says, you shall conceive and bear a son, it's written as a verb. as something to happen. You know, verbs are actual. I'm going to give you English. So a verb is an action word. Something that has happened or that you, something that, that has been done, that will be done, that you are currently doing, it is an action word. All right, so it's written as a verb. But then when the angel says it again in verse 5, and then when you see it again in verse 7, you shall conceive. It's not written as a future verb. As if something will happen. Now watch this. In both verse 5 and 7, it's written as an adjective describing what currently is. Okay, let me make it plain for you. She started the conversation with the angel of the Lord as a barren woman. By the time she finished talking, she was no longer barren. And the only thing that happened was that God spoke. Church, I've told you before, I'll tell you again, when God speaks, stuff happens. When God spoke in Genesis, the planets started spinning in their orbit. He spoke again and the sun began to shine. He spoke again and the flowers stood at full attention. He spoke again and the fish started to swim and the birds started to fly. He spoke again and breathed life into mankind. But then he spoke to Abraham and a nation was formed. He spoke to Pharaoh and his people had to go. He spoke in Jericho and the walls fell flat. And when God spoke through the prophets, a promise was given. But then we get to John chapter 1. And God speaks again, but this time the very word of God took on flesh and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only father. There is power when God speaks. Maybe, Maybe David says it best in Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in all his temple they cry, glory. When God speaks, things happen. Won't he do it, church? Won't he do it? You see, that should give us a confidence Because what we see in God's history is that God has never spoken a promise and failed to come through. And so if God says he can work with our weakness, if God says he can work in our brokenness, then we just got to be okay being weak and broken. We come to him weak and broken. We've seen it before in Judges and here it is again. The question is not, will God do what he says? The question is, when will we catch up to what God has already done? That's Manoah's wife's story. I'm not even convinced she knew it switched to an adjective. And can I tell you, and this might be hard for you, God didn't ask her permission. God didn't explain it in all of its detail. Because God is God all by himself. And sometimes we just got to be reminded of the fact that, that we aren't equal with God. We're not on the same plane as God. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are beyond our ways. God does not owe you an explanation. What I'm trying to say is you got to remember that you're the clay and he's the potter. 
And the potter can do what he wants with the clay, but what he does will always bring him glory. And so in light of that, we have two options as believers. We can trust him or we can question him. We, we see this in the juxtaposition of Manoah and his wife. I, I want you to, to catch this. It's beautiful. Manoah's wife presents us with a picture of trust in the words that are spoken to. I've told you before, in Judges, like women are put on full display. Like they're, they're, the, they're the OGs in the story. All right? Men keep dropping the ball. The women, they get it. And she is a picture of trust in the words spoken to her. Look, look at what we read beginning there in verse 6. It says, then the, the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me. And his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Actually, I think she did get it because that's where it's written as an adjective. She's describing herself in that moment. God's still teaching me. She says, so then drink no wine or strong drink, drink and eat nothing unclean for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now notice this. She doesn't ask where the messenger's from. She doesn't ask his name. She doesn't ask for the details. She's content with what she was told and content to be obedient to what he had commanded. Now we'll get into this next week. The angel of the Lord calls her as the one carrying Samson to also honor the Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow is found in Numbers chapter 6. A Nazarite vow indicated a person who was set apart or consecrated to the Lord. And so Samson from birth to death was to be consecrated to the Lord. And so because Manoah's wife was carrying her, she too had to honor the vow while Samson was in her. So we'll come back to the Nazarite vow in the next couple weeks. So you, you have Manoah's wife. She didn't ask where he's from, didn't ask his name. But, but look at her husband. Beginning in verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, please, oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come back to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. But Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? So notice this. You've got Manoah's wife who believes the word and simply trusts. And then you've got Manoah. And the first thing he does is start asking all these questions about what God's doing. Now, listen, I can't knock him. I can't. I, I, I feel like I'm Manoah a lot. I, like this resonates with me. I, I want the details. Like, I'm cool to follow God. I trust you, but it really helped me out if I just kind of knew what this plan was going to look like. Like, you don't even got to tell me two years. Give me two months. I'll be good. So, so Manoah's in this place that so many of us are. It's, it's, not, it's not a pure distrust, but it's kind of this guarded faith, if you will. 
of like, man, I believe that God can do it, but you just, God, you just got to give me a little bit more information if you want me to trust you. But we've already said it this morning. Here's the thing. The Lord does not owe us that. Like you, you want to do a fun study, go, go throughout the Old Testament and all the times that people started asking God questions about what he was doing and why he was doing it. Come back and tell me how many times God answered the question. I'm reminded of Job, right? Job was in the midst of great suffering. He was the best of us. And he starts questioning the Lord. And the Lord never answers his question. In fact, the Lord starts questioning Job. Who do you think you are? Clay? That you can ask the potter. Who do you think you are? Critter? That you can ask the creator. But here's the thing. God's not mad. God's not mad when we ask. He wasn't mad at Job. He's not mad at Manoah. I'm just trying to tell you, he's probably not going to answer your question. (laughs) He's big enough to take it. You can ask him. But you see, that's, that's what faith is. Faith isn't trusting when you know every step of the journey. Faith, faith is trusting that at the end of the journey, it'll be worth it. I love what St. Augustine said, that faith is believing in things unseen, and the reward of that faith is seeing the things in which you have believed. But we see it here with the angel of the Lord. Manoah asks the question. The angel doesn't answer the question. He said, what should we do with this child? What's it going to look like? And then verse 13 and 14. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither, drink, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. But Manoah isn't satisfied. Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah, he did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when the word comes true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? But I want you to notice something, and this gives me great comfort. Maybe you're, you're thinking, man, I'm, I'm more like Manoah than I am his wife. Like I question, I doubt, I'm unsure if God will come through. Maybe you are like Manoah's wife. And when God speaks, it's good enough for you. It's good enough for you. It's not a pride thing. Like the the spirit is working on us. And maybe God has given you grace that you can just trust him when he speaks. But do you know what's beautiful about this? With both responses, the promise never depended on the response. God was going to do what he had set out to do. And Manoah's questions didn't stop God's plan. But pay attention to this. This is significant. Manoah wants to know his name. And the angel of the Lord won't tell him his name. And he says, seeing it is wonderful. Now I would contend with you this morning that Manoah and his wife 
are in the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ. That it is Jesus before he took on flesh. Let me show you this and I'll be in my seat, short and sweet. So he says, my name is wonderful, but I'm not going to tell you it. I'm just going to give you a glimpse. And, And watch what happens. Verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. So the ESV translation gets a little wonky, so let me jump over to the CSB. This is a better translation with the Hebrew. It says, Manoah took a young goat and a grain offering and offered them on the rock to the Lord. Here it is, who did something miraculous or wonderful while Manoah and his wife were watching. Now watch this. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. And the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. Manoah's wife's preaching the gospel and she don't even know it. If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering or a grain offering at our hands. Now track with me here, okay? The pre-incarnate Jesus is telling them that there is a son coming who will begin to deliver them, but only begin. It says that in verse 5. We'll see at the end of the story. Like, I know Samson's like the killer kid story, but the dude's the worst. He is an insufficient deliverer. You see, Israel needed more than someone to deliver them from their earthly captors. They needed someone who could deliver them from their sin. And no judge up to this point has been able to deliver them from their sin. Yes, they can deliver them from the oppressors. They can drive out the captors. But not a one of them has been sufficient to change the hearts and minds of the people of God. They are caught in this cycle of sin and they cannot get out. So the pre-incarnate Christ says, I won't tell you my name now. But I'll give you a glimpse. And, and just to be clear, Manoah and his wife's response is justified. They fall on their faces. Manoah understanding that he has been in the presence of God. And so he declares out of a justifiable fear, now we die because we have seen God. Manoah knows what so many of us often forget, that on our own we cannot stand in the presence of God. But once again, his wife is the voice of reason. No, we ain't going to die because God was promising deliverance because a sacrifice was offered and it was accepted. We don't know his name. It's too wonderful. But then throughout the Old Testament, we start hearing whispers of that name. 
Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here it is, church, and I'm done. In Judges 13, Jesus went up with the sacrifice, but in Matthew 1, he he would come down as the sacrifice. And this time we would know his name because the virgin will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus became the deliverer that Israel always needed. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. They whipped him. They beat him. They put nails in his hands. They put nails in his feet. They put a spear in his side and by his wounds we are are healed every sin of every person for all time and he died church he died until death died but the story doesn't end there because three days later he got up death could not hold him the grave could not keep him and when he walked out of that tomb the chains of sin were broken and the cycle of sin could now for the first time be ended he walked out with all power and all authority he walked out as our only hope of being able to stand in the presence of God and I'm just telling you that somebody ought to praise God this morning that what had you could not keep you. Someone ought to praise God this morning that, that death, death in the grave has lost its victory and sin has lost its sting because Jesus walked out of the grave. Someone ought to praise God this morning, not only because you know his name, but because he knows yours. Won't he do it, church? Won't he do it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we stand amazed at all that you can do. God, we thank you that you are a God who works in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our destitution, and that you are a God who can take that and make something beautiful. And God, we come acknowledging that there are times in our walk where we are like Manoah's wife, where we just trust you. But God, there are also times where we are like Manoah, and trusting is hard. But God, we thank you that your promise has never depended on our faithfulness. But it has always depended on your, your faithfulness. And we thank you that when we had no hope, hope came down. And we know his name. And his name is Jesus. And to that name... We cry, holy, holy, holy. The earth is full of his glory. Give us grace to believe that you can do what we cannot understand, what we cannot comprehend, even what we cannot see. And we thank you that you are God all by yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.